All right. <laughs> Good to be with you guys as always. Let's uh, prepare our hearts to be in the Word together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for all your love, your goodness, your faithfulness, your constant presence and provision in our life that you have not withheld any good thing from us. You give us all that we need, and we can come today with thankful hearts, ready to receive the pure milk of the Word, by which we are strengthened, by which we resist temptation and the enemy's lies, which we can constantly be encouraged by, to point us, Lord, to you, and to the, to the work of your Son, to the work of your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts then to receive the Word as it goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles once again. We are still in the book of Colossians. Um, we're going to skip a couple of passages just in light of some of the things that I believe need to be addressed as we continue to uh, go forth with the Word of God, proclaiming His kingdom, proclaiming His righteousness, and as we've said before, attaching some of these instructions to uh, what we learned recently in Second Peter. And Colossians contains... Great instructions for that, great uh, practical truth, which we can live our lives um, in this world and be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. So um, we've been in chapter 3, and today we're going to be in chapter 4. So if you're there, follow along with me as I read chapter 4, and I will read verses 2 through 4. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now we're connecting this, of course, to the Christian's need, to the church's need, really, to persevere, to stand against the unrighteousness in our day and continue to faithfully proclaim the Word of God and to see God advance His gospel and His kingdom. And we would also say that that very thing, that most important thing, not only to God but to His people, is not accomplished without prayer. And so we will talk about this today. Um, you know, we talked about worship last week, you know, pr primarily worship and song and how it relates to the Word of Christ dwelling richly within us. And if we find that the Word of Christ truly does dwell richly within us, that will be reflected in the substance and quality of our praise. We will be teaching one another. It won't just be right like we talked about our private time with Jesus. It will be a corporate time together, eyes wide open, looking at one another and teaching one another via psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the things we mentioned as well regarding corporate worship is that we sing sometimes like we are a bunch of losers. There's no air of victory when we sing to one another. We sound like we are still outside the tomb as if Christ never rose from the dead and conquered death and sin. Rather, we sing songs in light of the victory Christ has wrought over sin and death and even this entire world. So we are victorious in Him. So we don't want to sing like losers, but sometimes we do. And I think we unfortunately do the same thing as it pertains to prayer. If we sing like we're losers, then we're going to pray like we're orphans. That's exactly what we do sometimes. Meaning that we don't pray at all. Sometimes, hardly. 
Prayer, I would say, is the one thing that we probably struggle with the most as Christians. When you talk about your prayer life and the, and the time you dedicate to it, most of us are weighed and we are found wanting. For some reason, Christians simply do not pray. So we pray as if God is not there. And I was thinking about this just before I came up here. I was thinking about, of all things, uh, Islam. Islam, false religion. And one, of, and one of their core teachings is prayer. I believe they have to face Mecca, I want to say, five times a day and pray toward Mecca. And what they are doing is they are praying to a God who is not there. They are praying to a false God. And I would ask the question, which is actually worse? Which is more odious to the Christian? Praying five times a day to a God who is not there or praying no times a day to a God who is always there? A God who dwells intimately and carefully with His people, providing their every need. Who, as Scripture says, even Jesus says, that God knows what we need before we even ask for it. So which is actually worse? All that to say, prayer should be one of the primary characteristics of the Christian. And in light of that, we actually make a move. We've been talking about the new man. right? Everything done in reference from what Paul mentions in chapter 3. Verse 1, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Further, we are to set our minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For, he says, listen to this, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we belong to Jesus Christ. We are one with him. We are united with him. And so what Paul goes on to say is in reference to this newness. And so we've talked about the character of the new man. We are new persons. We are, a new, we are one new man in Christ, even as the, the body of Christ, the church. And so we move on this morning to what is called the commitment of the new man. So not only does the new man have a new character from the inside out, but that is going to be exemplified in new habits, new commitments. In Christ, we care about different things than we used to. And the things that we are to care about, I would say like our family, our friends, our job, we care about the same things, but we care about them in a new and living way. We care about them in light of what Christ has done for us and what His Spirit continues to do in us. So prayer should be something that fits well within our operation as believers in Jesus. Prayer is the rule of the new man's commitments, not the exception, not something, once again, that we compartmentalize, that we do occasionally. Just a brief survey of certain Christians throughout history demonstrates the importance of prayer. Chrysostom, he says, prayer is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. Here's our, one of our favorite Reformed Baptists, John Bunyan, writer of the Pilgrim's Progress. He says this, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. Sometimes we forget the spiritual warfare aspect of, pray, of prayer. And yet, as Bunyan says, and I believe he is correct, it's a scourge for Satan. Because one thing the devil does not want us to do is pray. He does not want us to cast all our cares on him, the one who cares for us, as Peter instructs. Listen to Martin Luther. This is a good one. If I, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. 
I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Wow, isn't that flipping a common excuse upside down? I normally pray two hours a day. If I'm really, really busy, I pray three. I mean, think about prayer in light of that. So important. Oswald Chambers, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Again, not some mere attachment. It is in itself a great work for the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, always respond to every impulse to pray. The impulse to pray may come when you are reading or when you are battling with the text. I would make an absolute law of this. Always obey such an impulse. So even from these quotes, we can draw on the immense importance of prayer. On one hand, prayer is something that is planned out, that we commit ourselves to daily, according to Martin Luther, every morning. But then also, throughout the day, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, every impulse, every impulse, every opportunity to pray, we pray, and yet we still struggle to pray. I mean, many of us have to admit our prayer game is weak sauce. We just fail to pray. And there could be many reasons attached to this. And I think most of the time, it's simply laziness. Like, let's, let's, let's confess this to one another, that sometimes praying isn't a matter of forgetfulness. Sometimes it is. And woe to the Christian who continues to forget God. To forget to pray, friends, is, is to forget God himself. But sometimes we're just lazy. And making the excuse that Martin Luther puts us on guard against, we just simply don't have time. We don't have time. And these are excuses. These are not reasons why. I think sometimes even our own little uh, practice of Calvinism, we understand that God knows everything. We understand that God has it all arranged beforehand. He has decreed everything that's going to happen and from the beginning, and that God will have his way in things, that nothing can change that. And so we say, so, so why bother to pray at all? Some very ardent, ardent Calvinists will say that. Why pray at all? Why evangelize if God's going to do his work? And we'll attempt to answer that, of course. But I would say this is somewhere between a cop-out and cowardice, even carelessness. That we're so orthodox, we're not going to pay attention and commit ourselves to the very inevitable work of Christ advancing his kingdom over all the cosmos? Where does that line of thinking come from? I have to ask ourselves. What I am saying is it should be totally natural, supernatural even for the Christian to pray. It's built into the character and commitment of the believer. Let me give you a few reasons here. Even though we are Calvinists, I would argue that knowing that God is sovereign over all, that should be a catalyst for prayer. It shouldn't be a way in which we are unattentive to prayer. We just stop doing it because we know God has it well in hand. You know, imagine, you know, during, think of marriage, the courting process, right? We, we put our best foot forward. You know, we want the other person to admire us and, and like us and want to be with us. And then imagine performing all these these duties anticipating the, du- the mutual duties of a husband and wife, and then you get into marriage, and both of you just completely let yourselves go, or even one of you. The marriage is really going to struggle, if not fall apart. You understood you had commitments in your marriage, but you figured, oh, I'm married to a person, they're godly, they're solid, they, they're, they, they do what's right and good, so I'm just going to entrust myself to them and not carry out any of the prescribed duties joyfully that are found in Scripture. Think about how your relationship to your spouse is going to go if you just simply let yourself go. Shouldn't rather the recognized godly character of your spouse be a catalyst for how you 
serve them and how you relate to them? I would say yes, absolutely. But we make the same mistake when it comes to prayer and, and, and even point to our doctrine as a, re, as, as a reason to not pray. But we are to pray. Just, just in, by way of introduction, I want to give us a few reasons why we should pray. And you will probably, I would hope, think of additional reasons to pray that I did not mention. And I feel even silly a little bit saying this. Why should I have to give you a reason to pray? But if you don't pray, let us refresh ourselves in the Word of God as to why we are to pray. One, as alluded to, it is totally natural for the Christian to pray. We are one with Christ. We should be supernaturally drawn for the, for, to the Father. If we are a new man in Christ, we should want to pray. There should be no legitimate reason that we carry on a prayerless habit. See, we were born again. We should have a natural affection for God. We should want to be with Him. God loves us and desires to dwell with His people. And because of the work He does in our hearts, it should follow that we love Him and want to pray to Him. It should be strange. It should be weird that you don't pray. And if you don't pray, you should say, that's weird. I'm weird for not praying. I need to repent and pray by habit. Secondly, we pray. This, is gonna, this one's going to blow you away. We pray because God commands us to pray. Oh, yeah. God tells us to pray. Speaks through the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, be anxious for nothing, Philippians, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, don't forget to be thankful, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts. That is a command to pray, but also an anticipated result from God Himself by His I think the third thing we understand is that we, we see prayer exemplified by Christ. The Lord Jesus prayed all throughout the Gospels. Jesus prays. He prays to the Father and trusts Himself to the Father. Everything is done. Everything that Christ does is done with prayer. And even as the early church, the New Testament, the New Covenant church begins to grow, prayer is a pattern. You look in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 14, 242, 3, 1, then on and on, chapter 4, 6, 13. There is a consistent pattern of prayer, which clues us into something that God has identified prayer as a means to achieving his purposes, as instrumental in achieving his redemptive. Brings us to the fourth thing. And we can spell this out a little bit. Though God has determined everything that is going to happen, all outcomes, it follows that He also picks, determines, decides the means through which those things are actually accomplished. And even from a human point of view, changes things. So God has chosen that His will is carried out through the means of prayer. What does this tell us? Yes, if that if, that, if a person hadn't prayed, God would not have done that thing doesn't mean that God is rendered powerless if we don't pray, but we simply have some insight into the heart of God when it comes to prayer. That He ordains the very means by which He will achieve His sovereign will. Consider Hannah's prayer. In 1 Samuel 1.5, and this is such a, such a precious text, shows God's grace in the lives of His people. Hannah, remember Hannah was barren in 1 Samuel 1.5, says this, the Lord had closed her womb. Her husband, Elkanah, loved her, 
but the Lord had closed her womb. And then we find, reading down through the narrative in verse 15, Hannah responds to the, to the priest, who thought she was drunk, actually. She says this, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. What a great picture. She's not pouring, she's not pouring liquor, she's pouring out her soul before the Lord. Sometimes people do both. But verse 19 and 20, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and, mark this, the Lord remembered her. It's not as if the Lord forgot her, but the Lord called Hannah specifically to mind in order to bless her. It came about, verse 20, in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of so. The Lord answered her. That's what Samuel means. God has, God has heard. You've heard of the Shema, same word here, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Think about Elijah. He prayed and it did not rain for three years. Prayer was the means through which God withheld rain from the land of Israel because of their rank idolatry. Even Jesus prays. Even Jesus commands his disciples to pray. Listen to Luke 10 too. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think it is this verse alone that smashes any notion that we, as committed Calvinists who believe in the sovereignty of God, should, should simply rest on our laurels and say, oh, the Lord's going to handle it. He's going to save whom he will. What do I have to do with that? I mean, enough with that. Even Jesus says, pray to the Lord because the Lord will use those prayers as instrumental of calling out laborers and sending them into the harvest. He wants to include us. And what an amazing privilege that. Think about even Jesus' prayer before he selected the apostles. In Luke 6, it says this, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. You think that the choosing of those apostles wasn't involved in his all-night prayer? I'd say definitely it was. Even in his miracles, Mark 9.29, this is after the disciples were unable to drive out a certain demon. Of course, Jesus rebukes them for their, for their lack of faith. And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So prayer is a means to driving out demons. So along those lines, Jesus commands us to pray. Jesus sets that example. And I think even keeping the Lord Jesus in mind, we have a fifth, a fifth category. And this is very personal. Prayer helps us recognize our dependence on God. You want to know dependence. You want to find out about yourself? Like, pray. Oh, you will, you will know dependence when you will know just how much all this depends on God especially when we are struggling, especially when we are experiencing hurt, we are even doubt, struggling with our faith. But listen to Psalm 102, verse 17. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. And I think sometimes we come into place, we come into a certain places in life where we are like the, the tax collector who goes up to the temple to pray and it says, his eyes could not even look up to heaven. He knew who he was. He knew that he needed mercy. 
unlike the self-righteous one who went up there and started, as the Scripture says, prayed to himself, Lord, I thank Thee. He, he used the King James to pray. Lord, I thank Thee that I am not like this tax collector over here. And only one man went down justified. Who was it? It was the man who knew he depended on a righteousness not of his own. It was the miserable, the lowly, the humble who went down justified, whose prayer God answered. I mean, we think back to this reference in Luke 6 with Jesus praying all night. We think, wow, Jesus is the Son of God. God in human flesh. And yet, even He knew dependence on the Father. So clear. So true. Thanks, Greg. It's mighty, mighty Christian of you. No worries. So, of course, that is to say, prayer is so necessary. Prayer is so important. The Christian should feel starved if he does not pray. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is that he would rather teach one man how to pray than ten men how to preach. And here was a man who ran his own school for preaching. This man knew how to preach. It's a shame we don't have any recordings of him. But he was very, if if you've uh, read any of his stuff, especially his book, Lectures to My Students, he has a lot to say about preaching. I mean, it's, it's, you'll learn, if, if nothing else, that preaching is an art. There are a lot of ways to mess up preaching, one of which is talking way too long. But that aside, as important as preaching is, even Spurgeon recognized that men do not pray. And he would rather teach one man to pray than ten to preach. So important is prayer to him. And I want to say, in understanding what prayer is, it's more than simply talking to God. We're not just sitting there sputtering nonsense. We don't want to give it a, a hollow and empty youth group definition and fail to proclaim and understand its glorious content. Prayer is intimate spiritual communion with God. Can you imagine that we have the privilege to go to the throne of grace at any time and cast our cares on the Creator of the universe? who loves you and gave up His Son for you. I mean, Paul said it right. The Father gave up His own Son. How will He then fail to give us all things? If He didn't spare His Son, how will He fail to give us everything we need? Every good thing. And what a wonderful Father we serve. And yet, we relate to Him in such a way through prayerlessness, through stubborn prayerlessness. And we act like orphans. We act like God has abandoned us said this before, we, act, we treat God like He's some stingy miser, always turning His nose up at us, that he, as if He wants to withhold good things from us. We don't, we don't treat Him through our prayers as if He is generous and gives us abundantly out of His own grace through nothing that we have or can ever do. I mean, what an insult that is to a father who is ready, willing, and able to give us everything we need and knows when just when to give it knows it before we even ask and so we come to the first point first point is this let's look at our text together colossians 4 the first thing is this and we're going to talk about this commitment four four particular things about the commitment of the new man and the first is this and it's found in verse 2 devote yourselves to prayer the commitment is revealed by consistent activity that's number 1 the commitment to pray is revealed by consistent activity. When Paul says devote yourselves to prayer, that's exactly what he's talking about. That prayer, rather than being only intermittent, only spontaneous, 
Only when it happens to come to mind do we pray. No, we are to apply this activity of prayer with consistency, to make it a habit, to make it a true commitment. That is, the praying man prays often. The praying man prays deliberately. The praying man prays like his life depends on it. The praying man prays like the souls of others depend on it. His whole worldview and his whole outlook is shaped by seeing things in relation to God. That's what's wrapped up in devoting ourselves to prayer, that we would see things the way God sees them. That we would orient our thoughts, our thinking, to Him. Surrendering to His will means to persevere in prayer, to limit and even do battle against distractions. We establish then a willingness to return again and again to God, to that throne of grace. So there is a real earnestness here. We draw strength from prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus instructs His disciples to pray and to not lose heart. And many of us do struggle with that, do we not? We struggle with courage. We struggle to to persevere and to stand in the face of trials and temptation. We lose heart, and we are people who should not want to lose heart. How does that happen? What is the means by which that is accomplished? How do we stand strong and courageous? Well, we pray. To pray, we pray so that we do not lose heart. We persist. We cry out to the Lord and do it over and over and over again. That's what Jesus instructs his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. How is that done except through prayer? And even Jesus says, whoever asks receives, to him who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And we can understand with all faith that God hears us. He hears His people. It even says that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We don't always know what it will accomplish at the time, but we do know this. It will accomplish much. So why are we not praying? And if you want to accomplish much for the Lord, as we should as believers, because we know Christ reigns, what makes us think that any of this will be accomplished without consistent, devoted, fervent prayer. We must devote ourselves to it. We must pray fervently and continuously so that our, throughout the day our mind is fixated on Him We strive as we strive to, to please Him in all things. That's why we are told by Paul elsewhere to pray without ceasing. Pray nonstop so that it is a fixed pattern in your life so you see all things as God would see them. And there is something about building a habit of prayer. And that is and that is where we tend to go. That is where the mind tends to go. We, the way we think about things, the way we think about the issues of life start to change. We start to more immediately ask ourselves, how does God see this? I think when we devote ourselves to prayer as well, we start to pray in a more immediate sense. When something comes to mind, we, we pray right there on the spot. You know, rather than saying, hey bro, I'll pray for you. Hey, why don't we pray right now? You know, you have to make a decision. I made this mistake this week. You have to make a decision with your wife. You know, and maybe you're, maybe you're, there, there's, there's some overlap and disagreement. Why not pray right there for wisdom? Even the scripture says, God, whoever lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and without finding fault. Man, pray. Pray about everything. Pray for everything. And you will see it transform the way you think about God. So pay attention to prayer. Devote yourself to it. 
Pray deliberately. Pray specifically. And I would say, don't start your day without it. Seems like coffee has become the new thing that we can't start our day without. Get up, you know, you got your maybe your fancy French press, and you get your coffee going, you get the water boiling, boom, you got your coffee. You're ready to rock and roll. You're ready to take dominion. Go out and conquer worlds, right? Because you've had your coffee. But you didn't pray, my friend. So now what are you going to do? What happened with that? It's like prayer is just devolved. It's become compartmentalized. And these other things tend to, tend to take over when it comes to priorities and, and routine and habit. But our attitude short, toward prayer should be devoted in the sense that we know and believe that we cannot function without it. So that's the first one. That's what it means to be devoted to prayer. And that takes time. It takes commitment. It takes energy. It takes attentiveness, which leads us to our next one. Verse two again. So first, the commitment to pray is revealed by consistent activity. So be consistently active in it. Two, the commitment to pray requires constant attention. That's what we say. We don't want to simply pray and mutter things. We want prayer to be deliberate. We want prayer I would say even to be strategic. That is, ask God purposely for things. Keep alert in it. Keep alert in prayer. Pay attention. Be watchful. Stay awake. Matthew 24, 43, Jesus says this, if the man of the house knew what hour the thief would come, he would have stayed awake. It's a great illustration that teaches us the value of being alert in prayer. Do not let the enemy to come and steal your time with the Lord do not allow him to come and, and rob you of the blessing because you did not pray. When Jesus leads his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, and you're thinking here, wow, Jesus is in some kind of anguish, some kind of pain, and he goes over and prays just a short distance away, and what happens to his disciples? They fell asleep. Oh man, they fell asleep. Listen to what Jesus says. Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Well, I think we know one who fell into temptation that night was Peter. He did not watch and pray, and he denied knowing Christ three times. So Jesus says, watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation, for the Spirit is willing. Oh, we know that, right? We have so we engage in Christian activities, or at least start to, with the best of intentions. Oh man, the great things I want to do for God and then we don't pray. <laughs> the flesh is weak. I mean, there is a strain to prayer. I think sometimes, especially when we've been out of the habit for a while. Maybe we never developed the habit for a while. So we come to the Lord and we think, man, today's the day. I'm going to start praying. And we sit down and we're like, I wonder if I have any emails. God, check my phone. Oh man, the next day I'm going to do it this time. Oh, what about that cool video on YouTube? I just, I have to watch that. I have to, you know, just all these other places our mind goes when we want to sit down and pray and be faithful in it. And we get caught off guard so often. You wonder, how did the disciples get caught off guard? I mean, we have enough trouble simply with fatigue and tiredness. You know, then, then we bring technology into the picture. It can get pretty bad. And yet the command remains. We stand guard with vigilance. We pray so that we don't get caught off guard. We know that the flesh is weak, and if the Spirit is willing, then pray. Remember, the flesh is weak. But let me tell you this, the flesh is also good. The flesh belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us even the physical strength to pray and to cast our cares on Him. 
That's what Jesus says here. This idea is more than just staying awake. It's, it's paying attention. Pay attention to what you're praying about. So I'm saying pray specifically, not just generally. I mean, most of us in here, it's like, I guarantee you, maybe, maybe all of us in here, if you, look at, if you look across our lives and all the things we've prayed for, I bet you the thing that would come out that we are most thankful about is this food. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this food. Oh yeah, we're thankful for this food. So let's start to be thankful about other things. Let's add other things into our prayer. Oh yes, we are vigilant about this food. Let us be vigilant concerning all the other matters of life. To be watchful. That our prayers may not simply be by rote or without any content or just completely fly off the rails because we fail to pay attention. But let us be earnest. Let us be watchful. Let us keep ourselves from getting distracted. I mean, that's a benefit. If you are alert in prayer, then you won't get distracted. Think about this in, think about this in the Old Testament. You know, the, when the high priest went in to pray for the entire nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement, man, they were counting on him. They even tied bells to him, put, tied a rope probably to his ankle, and in case he kicked the bucket, he did something wrong, and he got smitten while in the most holy place. No one could go in there. They could, they'd have to pull him out. So the story goes. But imagine, imagine the weight of the high priest who, who goes in and he has to be alert. You cannot waltz into the presence of God with carelessness. And what's strange about even saying this is most of the time we fail even to waltz into the presence of God at all. That's, that's become the real challenge. And yet think about how much we count on Christ, our great high priest. Imagine if he were ever careless. Imagine if he ever failed in his prayer. Imagine if he ever failed to please the Father. Where, what would happen to our representation before the throne of God? We wouldn't have representation. He's the only one qualified. So think of it in light of that, how much we depend on Christ praying for us. But he is always vigilant, always attentive, always perfect in his representation of his people. And so in following his example, we too are watchful and alert and do not do not get distracted and fall into the temptation. We also, if we are alert in our prayers, we won't be, our prayers won't become stiff and mechanical. We will learn to pray for all matters of life, specific things, being mindful of the requests of others, of even our own situations and needs. And how can we accomplish this if we're always failing to stay alert and whether literally or metaphorically follow, falling asleep at the wheel? See, prayer is the steering wheel, not the spare tire in the Christian's life. And yet, sometimes we treat it that way. Keeps prayer also from being sporadic and random. Here's another great Spurgeon quote on prayer. There is a general kind of praying which fails for lack of precision. It is as if a regiment of soldiers should all fire, all fire off their guns anywhere. Possibly somebody would be killed, but the majority of the enemy would be missed. We don't want to pray like that, right? Just, <laughs> this guy doesn't know what he's doing. We want to pray specifically to aim our prayers toward a specific issue. That is what it is to be alert. And we'll cover one more today. So first of all, the commitment to pray is revealed by consistent activity. The commitment to pray requires constant attention. Thirdly, the commitment to pray is rooted in a core attitude. So you have consistent activity, 
constant attention and a core attitude. Yes, attitude matters. That is the very thing that keeps prayer from simply being us, us mouthing words. Same thing with singing, right? We don't just want to read words on a screen. Also with prayer, we don't want to just mouth words that really have no personal meaning to us. We want to come, as Paul says, listen to this, oh, there's that word again, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Paul seems to be really attentive to this issue of thanksgiving. Now in verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with what? Thankfulness in your heart. See, your prayer should be like your corporate worship. It should be thankful. We should pray with a heart of great gratitude. See, it's called the throne of grace. So what do, what do we have that we have what do we have that we did not receive? How can we go and make a claim on God with an ungrate with an ungrateful heart? So there should always be an attitude of thanksgiving. I've said we've already I think it's already uh, it's been mentioned five times in this book, so it's a, it's a pretty significant theme in the mind of Paul. Elsewhere in Colossians, in, in, in the opening chapter, verse 3, he's rejoicing over their salvation. In 2.6, he's rejoicing over their sanctification. In 3.15, he's rejoicing over his solidarity with Christ and his church, and on and on. There's lots of thankfulness going on, and thankful in, thankfulness in worship. And now, there is thankfulness in service to Christ because this is what the main this is what the main point of prayer is in this context that a door for the word would be open we'll cover that next lord's day but thankfulness abounds and it should be especially prevalent in prayer don't pray to god like he's an ogre don't go to god doubting his provision pray by faith anticipating that god will answer because that is what god does he answers prayer he is attentive to his people. Now, I want to give a couple of pointers here on why it is that we pray with thanksgiving, pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. One is this, and these are very simple, but just to remind you and hopefully draw you to prayer, draw you to regular prayer, especially if you're here this morning and, and you struggle with it. Number one is that thankfulness in our prayer points us to who gets the glory. Who gets the glory? Who are we ultimately thankful to? It's to the Lord, of course. When we, thank, when, we are, when we express thankfulness, we are understanding that God deserves all the praise and exaltation and glory for answering our prayer. We can point to God. I mean, develop a habit of this. That when you, especially when you are interacting with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that when it comes to the point that you are thankful of, for something, you point to the Lord for His gracious provision. We can develop quite a habit of talking about ourselves and all of our amazing accomplishments and fail to give God glory. And if you're not warned by anything else, be warned by Herod in the book of Acts who put on his royal attire and he went out to present himself before the crowd. And he gave them, he gave a great oration. And what did the crowd say? This is the voice of a God and not man. And then it said in the next sentence, because he failed to give God the glory, he was eaten by worms and died. Moral of the story, don't get eaten by worms. But more importantly, do not fail, Christian, to give God the glory. Because he deserves all of it. Remember, when we, when we glorify God, we come to a point where we're not just giving God the credit. 
but we find that we are understanding who God is. We are acknowledging the truth of how God has revealed Himself to us. We are understanding and giving thanks for the fact that God is indeed present with us. God gets the glory. And thankfulness more than acknowledges God for His gracious act. So secondly, thankfulness plunges us more deeply into God's grace. That is, we give thanks to a God from whom we deserve absolutely nothing, and yet gives us everything we need. And so a thankful heart recognizes this, that everything is a good gift from God. And so, as we talked about last week, we raise the cup of salvation and say, please, Lord, I want some more. It's our attitude. We always desire more grace. We always seek to increase our indebtedness to God. Thirdly, thankfulness increases our joy. The more thankful we are, the more we carry that joyful disposition. Thankfulness adds to our joy because it always reminds us to be satisfied in Christ and all that He has done for us. So this is more than simply looking on the bright side. It is repeating a truth that the Lord is our only source, our only true source of contentment and goodness. Fourthly, thankfulness brings peace. The thankful heart is a heart at rest. Because thankfulness recognizes that we lack no good thing in Christ. A beautiful picture of this, perhaps the most beautiful in all of Scripture, is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Right? We all know that. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. So the question for us today is do we pray like people who know the psalm or do we pray like people who know the shepherd? That's often the difference between a thankful heart and an unthankful. Do you know the shepherd? If you do, you will be thankful. And if you are thankful, you are at rest. And as in Psalm 23, we see no restlessness, no worry, and I think very importantly, no envy. There is no want. There is no lack. And there's no envying of others because in Christ, guess what? We've all been given this. And ultimately, we all have Christ. So we are, we are not to be comparing ourselves with one another in that regard. So as to, and just a final warning, because I want to treat thankfulness seriously, and then we will close. But the Bible is very straightforward about the condition of those who refuse to be thankful. There are some who just will not give thanks and yet claim Christ. And I want to, again, very, very seriously to give us a warning here. In Romans 1, it says this regarding rebels against God. It says, although they knew God, see, they know God, everyone knows God. The most, the most resilient, the most deliberate and intentional atheist knows God exists. It says, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor were they thankful. And what was the result? What was the result in Romans 1? They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was, dark, was darkened. See, a thankful heart doesn't speculate. A, thank, a thankful heart knows exactly where all this goodness is coming from. It comes from God. But what does thanklessness do here? What's the first thing that thankfulness does? Thanklessness does? It makes you stupid. Thanklessness makes you stupid. Your foolish heart is, dark, doc, uh, is darkened and you become futile in your speculations. That's exactly what happens with a thankless heart. And I want us to be on guard against a thankless heart, against this spiritual darkness. See, a thankless 
person is impossible to please. A thankless person, here's, here's, here's something that I think is kind of profound. A thankful person always wants more. A thankful person always wants more of the Lord. A thankless person also always wants more. But in an apostate sense, in that it's, God has never proven Himself. It's never enough. for a th- What God gives and what God does is never enough for a thankless person. He always wants more proof, and yet it's never enough. And the people that God puts in His life are also never enough. The thankless person always expects others to be like Him. He wants their admiration. He wants their love and respect. He believes that he's entitled to the good life. That's another thing a thankless person believes about himself. He believes that he's entitled. He believes that he deserves everything. And yet he doesn't see that everything is given to him by grace. By grace through faith. And it always wants more. And is always demanding. And yet never satisfied. So you see the subtlety. And here's the final thing, and I think the most disastrous thing that I want us to guard ourselves against. So mark this. A thankless person blames God for everything. A thankless person blames God for everything. Whenever trial and temptation, tribulation enter the picture, whenever something is taken away, they wilt like a dying flower. When calamity comes to them, and we recognize even calamity comes from the Lord. It's like what Job said, shall we not accept from God both good and evil? See, Job is not thankless. He may be perplexed, but he knows his God. He knows that everything he has is from God and that God can give it, God can take it away. But Job did not sin against God with his lips. And the thankless person always spies out an opportunity to blame God. But like Job, we are to accept both good and evil from the Lord and still recognize and affirm that God is good beyond measure and cares for us and will continue to sustain us in the nastiest of trials. The faithless and thankless man only affirms God when something bad happens. See, it's worse than only affirming God when something good happens. The thankless heart only affirms God, only recognizes God when he curses his name. And when he wants wants to blame God for something, he does not weather the storm, he does not persevere. And heaven help us if any of us comes to that point. When we are so thankless, we cannot acknowledge God and so forget him. And that is why, in closing, we remember the words from the psalmist. See, how are we thankful? we deliberately call to mind the goodness and grace of God. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And then he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits. That means we deliberately and and purposefully call all the benefits of God to mind. And so remain His people. I mean, if we we are to be marked as God's people primarily by love, by humility, but following close behind, and I would say even standing beside that is a heart of thankfulness. Let us be thankful. Let that be our core attitude along with constant attentiveness and a consistent activity of prayer. Let us be a praying people. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your care for us. And, and Father, we do ask in light of the text this morning, we want to be a thankful people. We don't want to be characterized by a thankless heart. We do not want to be characterized by forgetful minds. Those who have been so laxed in prayer that we hardly ever call you to mind throughout the day. 
So in that light, may we be constantly attentive. May we be vigilant in prayer. May we, be, may we keep watch consistently, regularly, to not lose heart, to not fall into temptation, to, de- not, to not deny you, Lord, that we would also be able to see and acknowledge and worship you over what you're doing, what you are doing in our lives and the redemptive work you continue to do in this world. Lord, may we not be hypocritical and inconsistent. May our prayers be deliberate. May we devote ourselves to it. May it be a joyful habit that we look at as even some of the reformers did, that they cannot live without it. It's very food for the soul. We starve without it. And, and we know that, and, and each of us, Lord, we understand, are, are busy. We're busy people. We live in a busy age where busyness often is the excuse for everything. And I pray, God, that the busier we are, the more prayerful we are. Help us, Lord, to recommit ourselves to this. We know that many of us, perhaps all of us in this room today, really, really struggle with prayer. And if, and if we're honest, it's, it's pretty pathetic. And we do treat ourselves like orphans because we fail to acknowledge you as, as our good heavenly Father every day. So help us, Lord, grant us repentance from that. Prayerlessness is, is wicked. We don't want to act wickedly. We want to act consistently with who we are, a new man in Christ. And as new men, we pray. We call out to you, recognizing our complete and utter dependence upon the grace that you so richly give us. Help us to be that kind of people, attentive to the work of the gospel. Lord, as we watch you change this world for your name and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.